This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. I'll start with a story that we call the opportune moment. The opportune moment. What do I mean by opportune? The exact right moment to say the exact right thing. That's what I mean by that. Let me give you a little principle for life. When God turns the spotlight on your life and hands you the microphone, say good things about Jesus. That's it. When God turns the spotlight on your life and hands you the microphone, say good things about Jesus. Be ready to give a, give a, give a testimony of the hope that lies within you. I personally believe that over the years we have driven ourselves into, and I say this cautiously, we have driven ourselves into a sort of a legalistic compulsion uh, when we present the gospel to other people. And sometimes uh, rather than having a conversation with somebody, we have our planned, canned presentation of the gospel that we feel very guilty if we, don't not, if we don't give them the whole thing. If we don't just lay it all on them. Like the young uh, Bible college student who uh, had an opportunity to go and preach uh, one Sunday and he was so excited about going. And, uh, and so he went, had his sermon all ready and he was out in the country, had a little trouble finding the, the place when he finally found it, he got inside and only one old farmer showed up that morning. And he waited and he waited and he waited. And um, finally he looked at the old fellow and he said, well, I, I, I'm not sure what to do. I, should, I mean, I have my sermon ready and it's just you and me and, uh, uh, you know, what do you think I should do? And the old farmer looked at him and said wisely, well, now, son... If I called up my cows and only one came to the barn, I'd feed that cow. And he said, well, all right then. And so he sat down. The young man opened up his Bible and preached his sermon. He got all finished and he did what he'd learned to do. Closed his Bible and he walked back to the door and he waited while the old farmer came through to shake his hand. And he shook his hand and the farmer looked him in the eye and he said, yes, young man, if I only had one cow that came up, I'd feed that cow. But it wouldn't make him eat the whole load. <laughs> he said like that. <laughs> now, we need to be appropriate. <laughs> and we need to be balanced in, in our presentations of the gospel. But uh, rather than feeling this overwhelming burden that if I don't give this person everything I've got and press him right now for a decision for Christ then I have failed the Lord. Uh, I've, I've seen people just give up on, on witnessing to others because of that kind of guilt-driven uh, methodology. And I'm appealing for you to just be relaxed and easy and ready to talk about your Savior. And God will give you opportunities where you might not get the results that you want on the spot. But remember this. If you don't remember anything else I say tonight, remember this. You and I are not that important. 
we may just be one person in a long train of people that God is sending into somebody's life. And if he's got 50 other witnesses all lined up to come to this guy, one after the other, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're the last one who's going to get to seal the deal. You see, you give what you've got when you have a chance to give it and you be ready and do what you can and leave the rest of it to the Lord. That doesn't mean pull back when the Holy Spirit's working and when you have something you need to share. But it does mean it's not up to you. Jesus will use you. The Holy Spirit will guide you. I got saved in a day when pastors were being taught how to sell Jesus and close the deal. Some of you remember those days. But I think what we should do is just talk about the Lord. Just talk about your Savior. Be ready to give your testimony. Now, you know some Greek. One of the things that you know about Greek is that there are different words for time. You know the word chronos and the derivatives of chronos. Chronology. Sometimes people refer to a certain specific type of watch as a chronometer and those kinds of things. It's based on the word chronos, which refers to time as it is passing. The passing of time is what that, that word means. There's some other Greek words that we use. There's the word logos and the word logic and logistics and all those kinds of things draw out of that term. Uh, and so there are many different terms like that that help us understand uh, words that we use in regular conversation even today. There's another word that refers to time that we don't often use, and that's the word kairos. Kairos also refers to time, but it's not the passing of time. Kairos refers to the opportune moment, the exact right time to do a certain thing. There's a prison ministry called Kairos Ministries where uh, people who love the Lord, who know the Bible, will go into prisons and sort of adopt prisoners, meet with them and teach them and disciple them. And it's a very effective uh, ministry. Kairos. I had some Kairos time experiences in my life and no doubt I'm sure you have too. I, I sort of jokingly say that the Lord has given me an airplane ministry. And what I mean by that is uh, that, that I fly on planes a lot and it's an ideal situation to, to witness to people uh, if, uh, if you are skillful and careful because you're sitting right next to somebody who usually is a total stranger. And uh, if you conduct yourself in a way that's not intrusive or offensive, uh, people will engage in conversation with you and then you can uh, engage in conversation with them. Usually, often, gospel conversation. Uh, I was on a plane one time, uh, coming uh, back from somewhere in Pennsylvania, I think, uh, and coming back through Charlotte and then on home. And the fellow next to me was sound asleep when I came to the seat. He had already staked out all the territory that he was going to need, and there was not quite enough room for him in his own seat, so he was kind of borrowing a little bit of what I was hoping to enjoy. And so there he was, sprawled out, snoring away. And I thought, well, I don't want to bother the guy. I don't want his first meeting of me when he sees my face to be the guy who's annoyed with him. 
And so I thought, well, I've got plenty of room. We'll just work this out. So I squeezed in there and got the seatbelt going. And uh, he was just, just sawing logs. I mean, and I was thinking, well, I don't know if I'm going to get a chance to speak to this guy or not. Lord, you work it out. I'd love to minister to him. I would love to share the gospel with him. Uh, but we flew and we flew some more and he didn't wake up. And it wasn't until the stewardess or the, the um, flight attendant uh, came on and made the announcement that uh, we're coming in soon and uh, so you'll need to button up and put your things away and how they do and uh, get yourself ready. And uh, so I, I started moving around and collecting myself and, and he woke up too. And so he's, he's looking around and thinking, where are we in? Wow. Who are you? you know, I mean, he didn't say those words, but I knew, I knew he was thinking that. And so uh, uh, we, were, uh, we were awake, and he was awake. And so I have a little, little thing I ask people that uh, helps me to get started with a stranger. And so I said it to him. I said, are you um, coming home or are you on your way out? He said, oh, no, I'm, I'm coming home. And I said, been, been out on business? And, no, he said, I, uh, I've been to my dad's funeral. And I thought, here's a man with a need. Here's a man with a heavy heart. And I said, oh, that hurts. Were you close? He said, no, not so much in, in recent years. I wish I had been, but no. And I could tell it was a painful thing for him to talk about. I didn't want to pry or push we were running out of time. Uh, we were descending. We were coming into Charlotte. I just had minutes. And I was praying for God to give me wisdom. If we were going to have a conversation, it was going to have to be short. And then he was thinking and remembering. And he reached inside his shirt. Top couple of buttons were undone. And he reached in there and he got a hold of this silver chain. He began to pull this chain out. It was a heavy chain. And there was a medallion hanging on that chain. And when he got the medallion in his hand, he looked at it for a few moments. And then he held it for me to look at and showed it to me. And etched crudely into that thick chunk of silver was the image of an old man, bearded, wearing a long robe, holding a staff, like a, like a thick walking stick. In front of that man stood two children, little boy, little girl. They too were wearing robes and they were looking in fascination at this old man holding up this stick. For wrapped around the end of that stick, carved in silver, was a serpent. And that foreboding snake fascinated the eyes of those two children that were carved into that medallion. And he showed it to me and he said, I think it's in the Bible. And I said, would you like to hear the story? And he said, yes, yes, would you? And I started quoting John 3 to him. As Moses <clears throat> lifted up the serpent 
even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here was this opportune moment for this man whose heart was heavy with the loss of his father. Going through what so many go through at that point in their life when they are remembering all the missed opportunities and all the neglected responsibilities and all the ignored conversations that might have been had. And now his father reached his heart from beyond the grave and touched his son with a gospel message in a gift that he gave to him, unknowing what his dad had done. And the Lord put him on an airplane next to a gospel preacher and gave him just a few minutes to explain the message of that medallion and give him that simple gospel that we find in John chapter 3 and verse 16. We talked a little bit more about the context of those verses and read from that passage of scripture and God was clearly present in our meeting and our time together. Let's pause for just a moment for a word of prayer. Father, as we talk about the opportunities that you give to us and the places that you put us and the people that you put in front of us so that we can have opportunities to speak for you, I pray, Lord, that we would remember and use those opportunities for your glory. Help me, I pray, to be to the point, to be clear, to be a blessing, to stay out of the way of the Holy Spirit's work in the hearts of these people. In Jesus' precious name, amen. amen. In John chapter 3, the Lord is talking to one of his disciples. Nicodemus came to Jesus and asked for some clarification, for some explanations. And Jesus began to explain to him that he had to be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can that how can that be possible? How can a man be born again when he's grown? I mean, how, how is this possible that you would even say something like that? And Jesus answered and said to him, well, there's, a, there's another birth that you have to go through. You have your physical birth. Now you need to have this spiritual birth. How can these be? How can these things be? And the Lord said to Nicodemus, are you a master, a teacher of Israel and you don't know this? We speak what we know, and we testify what we've seen, and, receive, and, and ye receive not our witness. If I've told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even, as, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. When we talk about gospel conversations, we're talking about lifting up the Son of God. Lifting up Jesus. Lifting up the Savior, as he talked to us about in John chapter 3. And then he gave us that, that, that simple statement of the gospel in John 3.16. And the fact that God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's why we're here. We're here to speak for Christ. We're here to represent him. 
We're here to do this job that needs to be done so that people can come to the Lord. And sometimes all we'll have time to do in that opportune moment is give them a simple presentation of the core of the gospel. You say, did the man get saved? I don't know. I wish I could tell you why, yes, he did, but I don't know that. Because we landed in Charlotte and we collected our things and he got off the plane and went his way and I got off my plane and went into another plane. <laughs> my friend Rod Bell, who many of you know, he's with the Lord now. He was on an airplane going somewhere and it was a terrible snowstorm. And they landed and had to get off that plane and get on another one. And he had been witnessing to a young lady on that plane next to him. And she said, well, I, I, think, I think what's most important is that if we're sincere, if we're sincere, that's what really matters. And Rob was trying to explain to her, well, yes, you must be sincere. But you must be sincere about truth. You can't just be a sincere person and embrace a lie. You have to be uh, embracing the truth. And so they landed in Charlotte and it was just blinding snow and they were trying to get all the planes they could off the air, uh, off the ground in the air. And so they raced to another plane that was very nearby and both of them were on the same one. And, and they got on and the next thing you know, uh, they announced that, uh, well, in our flight today to wherever it was and it wasn't the plane they were supposed to be on. And so they got off of that plane, ran back out into the snow and across the tarmac and onto another plane. And the young lady got on the plane first and she was collecting herself and thinking, oh, oh, I'll be glad when this is over. And Rod walks by and he looks at her and says, were we sincere? <laughs> you can hear him saying that, can't you? Yes, they were sincere, but they were on the wrong airplane, you know. Listen, a person can be sincere, but be wrong, can't they? And it's our responsibility not only to be sincere, but to be clear and to have truth and to help people understand that truth. So this man who was my seatmate on that plane that held up that medallion with the gospel carved into it by his father who had now gone on to his reward. That was a great reminder to me that the Lord puts us where he wants us to speak to who he's, he's prepared for us so that we can share the gospel to them. So, that's what we call the opportune moment. And one of the stories in this book, the very first chapter, is called the opportune moment. And we try to teach that principle because there are opportune moments that find their way into your daily life and your schedule, and sometimes they go right past and you don't even think about it. You're not even aware of it. But you never know who it is that sits down beside you. You never know who it is that you enter into a conversation with. I thank God for the conversations that were had to get the gospel to me. I was raised in the home of a Methodist preacher. My dad was a Methodist preacher. If the church was open, my brother and I were in there. Dad saw to it. But I didn't hear the th same things in the Methodist church that I would hear in a church like this. I'm not trying to denigrate anybody. I'm just saying I sat there, I behaved, but I just didn't get it. I didn't get it. I didn't know what my responsibilities were. I didn't know what God had done for me. 
My mind was closed to it. I just didn't hear it. I didn't want to. And I grew up through all of that. I finished my uh, high school and I went off to college for a couple of years and then I joined the military and I went where my rich uncle told me to go. And he sent me overseas twice. And the second time I was in Southeast Asia, I was working a midnight shift on a squadron of fighter, fighter jets and trying to get through so I could get home to my family. And while I was over there, the Lord put me into some opportune moments that he had planned for the lives of some other people. I had a bad experience with one of the guys on my crew. He was reckless. And if you're reckless around explosives, you're dangerous. There's no other way to put that. There's all kinds of ways you can hurt yourself. When you've got fuel and liquid oxygen and sharp edges and all kinds of things, uh, you, you've got to pay attention to what you're doing and you've got to be careful. And I was a nighttime shift supervisor and this young fellow who was on my crew was on the back of, a, of an A-7 aircraft stumbling around. And I thought, what is he doing up there? And why is he up there? And it looks like he is going to fall if we're not careful. So I parked the, the truck and I climbed up the ladder and I got back on the back of the plane and I began to look at him and I saw that he was breaking the airplane is what he was doing. He thought he was fixing it, but he was not doing the job properly. He was putting a, a blast panel on, a, uh, on top of a component that the hydraulics people had been working on and he was putting it back on the wrong way. He wasn't staggering the sequence of the screws, as some of you understand. And he was going right around them and warping that panel. And he'd never be able to get the last few in. And so I said, Bob, that you know better than that. You've got to take those back off and you've got to put them in sequence. And for that matter, let me see the forms. I don't think we inspected that work. He said, I checked it. It's fine. He was just a young two-striper who didn't really know what he was doing. And so I said, okay, Bob, take that panel back off and uh, call me for an inspection and let's do this job the right way. Well, he got more and more mouthy. And then I began to realize he's impaired. He's been smoking something. And that's exactly what had happened. And that's the reason he was staggering around and just not caring about things. And after just a few minutes, he was, he was so mouthy with me, I thought, this is going to turn out very badly. Now, I know it's going to turn out badly for him, but if we keep this up, it might turn out badly for me. <laughs> and so I said, okay, get your tool bag, get off the back of this airplane, get off this flight line. And you meet me in the sergeant's office at 8 o'clock in the morning. And so he had a few more choice words, and he, he just trailed off uh, cursing me as he, as he left the flight line. I got another man to come up, finish up the job, inspected things, buttoned it up, signed it off. At 8 o'clock the next morning, I was in the sergeant's office telling him, I got a fellow coming in here to see us, and I got, uh, I got, you, got, you got to deal with him. And he said, okay. So uh, he, uh, he, he walked in, and, and the sergeant uh, corrected him, and immediately... He started railing against me and against uh, the Air Force and the President and everybody else. And, uh, and uh, finally the, uh, the sergeant, uh, you know, in his calm, brusque way said, you shut up, just like that, you know, and sit down. And so he looked at me and he said, Sarge, what do you want? I said, I want somebody I can trust in the dark. That's what I need. I can't, I can't work with this guy. He's dangerous. <coughs> He's going to hurt himself. <coughs> He's going <coughs> to hurt somebody. So he needs, he needs to go work for somebody else somewhere where the lights are on. And he says, done. And so he dismissed me, and then 
he told uh, the Bob to, to stay there. And as I went off the flight line back onto my dorm for some rest, uh, I could hear those melodious tones of the sergeant just chewing him out. <laughs> you know, it was pretty rough. And so that was it. I didn't work with Bob anymore. Bob didn't work with me anymore. I didn't have to worry about him. He was out of my life as far as I was concerned. Gone. Done. And the next night, his replacement came. And this guy was an interesting fellow. He was from Nicaragua. And he spoke with a thick Spanish accent. And when he came on the flight line, he was singing. And I thought... Is this the new guy? And I listened and he was singing, Jesus, my Lord, I'll love him forever. And I thought, oh, bring Bob back. <laughs> you know, not this, not one of these. And so he came on there and I got to tell you, Gus was his name. And I gave Gus a hard time. I really did. I took out all my frustrations of my Christian upbringing on that poor guy. And uh, gave him extra work. You know, somebody would say, we just, we inspected, we pre-flighted that plane over there, and that right main tire's got to go. It's just, it's, we shouldn't send it up like that. So we got to change that tire. And I would say, Gus, get that tire. So here he thought he's done. He's going to sit around in a dispatch truck, take it easy, and talk to, to the other guys. But no, now he's got to get his tool bag, and he's got to go out there and change the tire. Jack the plane up and all that. That's a lot of work and a heavy thing, you know. And he never complained. Not once. Okay, boss. And he went right to it. Another dirty job would come up involving a lot of fluid or things that's going to make a big mess. And uh, he just cheerfully agreed and took the work and went. And I thought, what is wrong with this man? You know, he's such a hard worker. He's just, and he was always witnessing and talking about the Lord. And, uh, and after a while, I thought, oh, boy, I don't know if I'm going to be able to put up with all these months with this guy. And so, uh, but that was, that was all part of the Lord's plan. And one night he came to work, and it was one of those things where all the planes were buttoned up and put to bed. And we were just, you know, stay away from them and don't break them until the pilots get here at dawn. I mean, it's one of those deals. And so uh, there he sat on the dispatch truck. And Gus pulls, reaches in his pocket, and he pulls out a little booklet. Now, that was in the days when Jack, uh, Jack Chick was writing all of his tracks. And we had Chick tracks by the thousands all over that base. And this one was called, This Was Your Life. You probably read that one. And I think I've read them all. <laughs> but he gave me this, and he says, oh, no, no, no. It was called The Beast. That's what it was. And... Uh, and he gave me that, that gospel tract, and I started reading it. And i got to tell you, I read it for one reason. I was going to make fun of it and joke around with the other guys. Because by that time, they knew that Gus was a gospel witness, and he'd been witnessing to them. And they, they thought, oh, boy, this guy. And so he gave me that gospel tract, and I began to read it. And as I began to read it, I thought, this is what my grandmother taught me when I was a boy. She told me all about this. She told me about the Lord's return and about this person called the Antichrist and about all these things that were going to happen in the end times. And as I read through that little book, all of that teaching that I had learned at my grandmother's knee came back and flooded my mind and my soul. And I listened to that and I looked at it. And I became so convicted 
I finished it, I closed it up, I held it out to Gus, and I said, Gus, I think I believe that. I think, I think I believe some of that. And I was handing it back to him, and he says, no, 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 you keep it, you keep it. And so I put it in my pocket, and I kept it. And then I forgot about it and ignored it. Well, when I would get off work, I would go back over to the USO, which was uh, near the barracks where they had put me. They put me in the barracks where the, where the airmen were because there was a lot of drugs going on, mostly marijuana, and they wanted uh, some NCOs in there to kind of keep the peace. And so we, uh, uh, we, were, we were in that situation, and I would go over there and write uh, my late wife a, a letter every single day, and she would write to me. And so I went over there to, um, to write my letter, and I had a couple of books there that I was studying. And um, I, was, I looked across the table to the table right in front of me. And there, there sat this guy with this kind face. And he, he was su such a tender-hearted fellow. And he had such a winning smile. And I mean, actually, I wondered if he was goofy or something. And he, uh, he, uh, he was sitting over there looking at me. And I kind of nodded. And he nodded back. And I got up to get a cup of coffee. And I noticed that he, he was reading a book. And so I thought, well, I guess I better speak to him, you know. And he's reading and I'm reading. Maybe we we'll talk about what we're reading and something like that. And so I came back by and I said, hey, what are you reading? And as soon as I said it, I thought, oh, I walked right into this. You know what he was reading. <laughs> he was reading the Bible. And I was not. And I started the conversation. And so I said, oh, Really? He said, you know much about Romans? And so I would know what Romans was. And I said, well, a little bit. And he says, I'm stumped. And so he asked this question, and I thought, you know, what do I do? I think I know the answer. <laughs> but I don't, want, I don't want to get dragged into this. And so we started talking a little bit, and we had our conversation. And then he was very, very kind, very sweet, well, not looking to trap me or anything like that, but just being a, being a, a good testimony. We finished our conversation that night and then I saw him there again the next night and the next night and the next night. So all this is going on where I got Gus singing to me at work and then I got Gary sitting across the table from me where I go to write my letter. And I thought, man, these guys have got me surrounded. You know, I mean, what is going on? And so Gary was so sweet, so tender. And um, he asked me that night, are you a Christian? And I lied. And I said, yeah, my dad's a preacher. That part was true. The, the word, yeah, I wasn't. If I was honest, I would have said, no, thank you. I'm not, and I don't want to be. I've had enough of that in my life, uh, and I'm really not interested in getting back into it again. But what I said was, yeah, my, my, dad's, a, my dad's a preacher, thinking that would get me off the hook. It actually hooked me. And so I felt so guilty about that. <clears throat> so I went to him the next night and I said, you know, Gary, you asked me a question yesterday. Was I a Christian? And I lied to you. I said, yes. Truth is, I'm not. I know about it, but I'm not interested in it. And I just wanted to shut it down quickly. And I thought, well, now I ask for it. Whatever he says to me, I've got to listen to it. But he said, oh, okay. That's all he said to me. And he was so at peace. He wasn't in a hurry. He wasn't pressuring me. He didn't rebuke me. He didn't lecture me. He just got back into Romans and asked another question. And I thought, what is it about this guy? 
And over the next several weeks, we had many opportunities to talk to each other, and he sort of took me on as a project. He worked the day shift, I worked the midnight shift. When he was getting off his day shift job, he would come and find me, and I was just getting up from my, my rest, and sometimes he'd say, you want to go eat? And we'd go eat, and we'd talk, and we were friends. And he found out that, you know, he had a daughter he'd never met. She was born the month after he left. And uh, so there we were, and we were talking about our families, and we were talking about life. And I thought, this is really something. Here's this guy who freely admits that he is a Christ-loving Christian, and he's becoming my friend. I, I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know how to process that. So I just decided if he wants to be my friend, I'll just be his friend. And so we began to talk and we began to meet. And then one day he, is, he invited me. He says, John, why don't you come to chapel with me on Sunday? And I thought, I knew it was coming. Here we are. Okay. And by that time I felt like, well, why should I say no? He's a nice guy. Okay, sure. So I went into the chapel and we had this you know, what one of our guys called a whiskey palian who was the chaplain. And uh, I mean to tell you, that guy was a smoker and a cusser and a drinker, and here he was wearing the cross on his collar. What a scoundrel. And he got up there and he preached the most good-for-nothing thing that I think I've ever heard. And I looked at Gary and I said, is this what you're talking about? And Gary said, no, John, this guy needs what I'm talking about. That was the most helpful statement I think I'd ever heard up to that point. For him to tell me that here's a guy who claims to be not only a Christian, but a spokesman for God who's living like the devil, I thought, well, that makes sense because I think I've seen a lot of guys like him in my life. But here's Gary, and I asked, I said, what do you do? He said, well, look, you can't judge all Christians by this guy, and you can't judge Christ by this guy. And it just made so much sense when he told me that. And I thought, what do we do with this guy? He said, well, just pray for him. You know, and he was just totally at peace about the whole thing. Well, one day he asked me, he said, hey, look, you want to come down to the mission house on Friday? And I said, what is the mission house? He said, well, there's a missionary family over here, and uh, they live downtown, and they've got their own house. And on Friday nights, they bring uh, GIs in for dinner, and they prepare a home-cooked meal, and then we have some Bible study. Well, when he hit the words home-cooked meal, he had me. I mean, I thought, yeah, I'm going. And so we, uh, we went down there, had an incredible meal. We got all finished, and then everybody gathered around. The, the ladies were cleaning up the table and the food and all that. And all the guys who had come down there uh, for the fellowship time got together with the missionary, whom we called Brother Harvey. And uh, so Brother Harvey collected all of us, and we got together in a circle in their living room. And I was in that circle. And he's teaching us from the Bible, and then he's going to lead us in prayer. And I looked around at this group, and I thought to myself, if they keep going, they're going to get to me. <laughs> and then what? What am I going to say? How am I going to respond to this? So I started thinking about the fact, well, look, I spent a lot of my life in church. I've heard a lot of prayers. I heard my grandmother's prayers. I heard my dad's prayers. I heard sermons and all this kind of thing. I thought, I, could, I think I can come up with something, surely. So I started trying to make up a prayer. And they were all praying. And I was, of course, the last guy in line. So they were going to keep on praying. And then they were going to get to me. And I thought, maybe I'll just pass. 
Maybe I'll just pass. And then I thought, no, I ought to say something. What do I have to say to God? And I thought, well, if I'm going to talk to God, I can't be lying. I mean, I've been lying to all my life to people about my religion and telling everybody, yeah, I'm a Christian because my dad's a preacher. And I thought, well, what am I going to say? And the next thing I know, while I was wrestling with that, the guy on this side of me said, amen. And I thought, oh, me. So I just started talking to the Lord and telling him the truth. I cannot remember what I said. I do not remember verbatim what my prayer was. But it was something like this. Lord, I believe you're real. And I know that you are offering me something and that you don't want anything in return from me. But I want what you're offering me. I'll take it all. And I give you everything I've got to give. That was my sinner's prayer. And I want to tell you, it did the job. It's as though somebody turned on the lights. And all these guys were saying, Amen. Amen, like that. And I thought, what just happened? What just happened? It's as though I've been in a coma all my life and I just woke up. I couldn't explain it. I couldn't understand it. We rode uh, what we call the old smoker, that bus. <laughs> I don't know how it kept going. We rode that smoker back to the base, went to our rooms, and I laid down, pillowed my head, and stared into the dark, thinking... Wow, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. That was nothing compared to all the pretense of religion that I've lived with trying to please my Christian family. And I finally fell asleep and I woke up the next morning and the first thought on my mind was, I am more alive than I have ever been. Not only is my body awake, my soul is alive. And I got out of bed praising God, thanking the Lord, and I knew everything had changed. And all I wanted to do was tell other people about what had happened to me. I had some bad habits I needed to get rid of. One of them involved the things I kept in my uniform pocket right there. And I thought, I, gotta, I, gotta, I can't do this in front of my Christian friends. What am I going to do? Well, I'll just hide from them. I did that for two or three days. And then I thought, this is ridiculous. Here I'm hiding from my Christian friends and God's looking right at me, you know. <laughs> and so I thought I need to quit this. And so I threw that away, got rid of it. I had, still had the habit of reaching for it. And so I put a New Testament in there. So whenever my hand would by itself go up to that pocket, I'd get my New Testament. And be reminded, I belong to somebody else now. I'm the Lord's, I'm not my own. I've got to do some things that are different. What a glorious experience that was in my life when I came to know the Lord. There's so much more connected to all of this. I wish I could tell you all of it. Bob uh, got sent back to the States. There was another fella that got saved over there who then they shipped back to the States because he was heavily involved in drugs. And uh, after he got saved, uh, the Air Force was afraid for his life. And so they sent him back 
uh, to the States. And so some of the guys were trickling back from our unit uh, back to the States. And when I got home, uh, I was uh, involved in a whole bunch of opportunities to tell folks about the Lord. And uh, the, the master sergeant I was working for uh, put me in charge of uh, checking all the aircraft maintenance forms and, and correcting the mistakes before we, we turned them in and filed them. And so I had a lot of opportunities to have guys in there at the desk and to talk to them about the Lord. And the sergeant was hearing me do that. And he started calling me the chaplain because I was witnessing to so many of these guys. And there was one fellow I'd been witnessing to that rejected everything I told him and then ended up uh, uh, standing us up for a meeting that he was going to have with me and, 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 and my pastor. And, um, uh, and then he, he went out and got drunk and ran his car into the trees and killed himself. Not, not intentionally killed himself, but ended up killing himself. And then the sergeant chose me to escort his body uh, back home. And so I did, met his family and the hopelessness of their Catholic funeral. And, uh, and I got back from that, and it, wouldn't you know it, the night I got back from that trip, I, I picked up a note that said I had charge quarters that night. You know how, what CQ is, where you've got to go to the barracks and sit by the phone all night long. And so there I was in that little room with the phone all night long. And as I was sitting there trying to stay awake, Fellow knocked on the door. Can I talk to you? I looked up and it was Bob from Thailand. And I said, Bob, what are you doing up this time of night? He said, I understand that you escorted so-and-so's body uh, back to the funeral. I said, yes, that's right. He said, do you know if they've packed his stuff? And I said, well, I would imagine yes. Uh, he said, did you take it with you up there? I said, no, I didn't have anything like that. Uh, me, my uniform, and him in a box. That was it. And so uh, he, uh, he said, man, there's something I've got to get. And I said, well, what? And he said, well, there's something that I, uh, of mine that, that was in his stuff that, that, I, that I've got to get back. And, uh, and he was becoming more and more frantic as we talked. And I said, Bob, relax, man. If, it, if something belongs to you, you know, you can talk to the Air Force, and if it still exists on the planet, they'll give it to you. And so uh, he, he said, uh, I don't know, I can't even talk to anybody about it. I said, well, you're talking to me about it. That's, that's, what is it? What are you so worried about? He said, it's my name. <laughs> I said, Bob, please be clearer when you're telling me what's going on. He said, he's got a little book. It's got names written in it. And beside those names is how much money they owe him. And my name is in that book. I said, Bob, was he doing drugs? And he just hung his head. I said, were you buying drugs from him? And he hung his head even further. And he was afraid that he and all the other guys that had been buying drugs from this guy were about to get busted. And he was very concerned about what was going to happen to him if he got found out, as well he should have been. Well, I don't know whatever happened. I don't think they ever found it. I don't think they ever did anything about it. But that night, I said, you know, Bob, we, we had our issues when we were over in Thailand, didn't we? And he kind of nodded. And I said, you know, you saw something happen to me. and You saw what, changed, what happened in my life when we were over there. And he said, yes, I did. I said, you know what you need more than you need anything on earth? You need what I found in Thailand. You need the person that found me in Thailand. 
And Bob listened to me that night as I gave him the gospel and invited him to receive Christ as his personal savior. And he got down on his knees and was gloriously saved that night. What a joy that this fellow that I'd almost come to blows with when we were over there has now gotten on his knees and received Christ as his savior. What a joy, what a blessing to see how that all unfolded from a simple conversation that the Lord allowed us to have. I preached from a Bible that Bob gave me shortly after he got saved for the first several years of my ministry. And then Bob decided that he was going to get his pilot's license and he was going to go off to Bible school and he was going to prepare for the ministry and go into mission aviation. And he thought, you know, it all makes sense to me now. God wouldn't have given me all this training and all this understanding of airplanes if he didn't want me to use that for his glory. And so I'm going to study the Bible and I'm going to go to the, uh, to the foreign field as a missionary and I'm going to get me an airplane and I'm going to help these missionaries. And boy, he had a dream for God. And he was on his way down to see me and he was going to stop at a couple of Bible colleges along the way. And so he was on his way up here into Virginia to see a college up here. And like many low-time pilots, uh, he got into some mountain flying conditions that he was not prepared for, and he flew that plane to the side of the mountain and lost his life. And the Lord allowed me to have a ministry uh, to his extended family there for a time, but by that time I was already out of the Air Force and pastoring a church and so I didn't have a lot of connection there with Bob, but I thought about the fact the night that Bob got saved. I thought about the, the, the night that I had conflict with him when I was an unsaved man and fired him and drove him off the flight line. And then how God brought him across my path again when we got back to the States at the opportune moment to hear the gospel and how the Lord gave me the words and Bob heard them and he trusted the Lord. And all of this took place over the course of probably a year, over and over and over. And how through persistent, faithful contact with that man, I realized it wasn't me doing the work. It was God drawing this man to himself. And he brought him to me when I could do nothing for him. And then he brought him back to me when I could give him the gospel. And the Lord saved him. And he gave his heart to the Lord. And he didn't live long enough to realize his dream. But his story continues to be told. And as long as I'm drawing breath, it'll continue to be told. My sister said, when's the last time you were at Myrtle Beach? Air Force Base. And I said, been a good while. She said, have you seen those airplanes that are on static display there? I said, I have. She said, you should stop and take a closer look. Look particularly at the A-7. That was the bird we were working on at the time. So Carol and I did that. We stopped there. We parked the car. And I got out of there and looked that A-7 over. Well, there's a thing they used to do in the Air Force. I don't know if they're still doing it now. But they would paint the name of the pilot that was assigned to that bird on the canopy rail. And then they would paint the name of the crew chief on the nose gear door. The, the little door that would close when the, when the landing gear went up. So I looked at that A7, and I didn't recognize the pilot, but I looked at the, at the nose gear door, 
And there it was. When I knew Bob, he was a two-striper. But there it was on the nose gear door, the crew chief of that bird, Staff Sergeant Bob Nowoski. That was such a comfort, a comfort to my soul. He got his things worked out with God, and then he got his life squared away and became a worthwhile troop and got promoted, and God changed everything. Now, I don't know about you, whether you've got somebody on your list, but one of the fellows I want to look up as soon as I get to heaven is Bob. How are you doing? Well, I know how he's doing because I know where he is. And all that came through some simple conversations that the Lord allowed us to have. Now, if I'd taken this, this position, I, I've heard this so many times in my life. Nobody has a right to hear the gospel twice until everybody's heard it once. I don't find that anywhere in the Word of God. Says who? I'm glad I heard it more than once. There's a whole bunch of people I've given it to more than once. And my philosophy now is I'll give it to them as many times as they'll tolerate it. You know? Just keep doing it. Keep trying. Keep preaching. Keep moving forward. Keep getting the job done. The opportune moment for the fellow on the plane who showed me his medallion lasted mere minutes. The opportune moment with Bob took a lot longer. A lot longer. But God sent it. It came, and we had those conversations. I wish I could tell you more, and I'm not selling a book now, but I'm just telling you the reason we wrote this was to share stories like that. Uh, Stephen Lee, he, he refers to me as, as a storyteller extraordinaire or something like that on there. I'll own that title, I suppose. But you've got some stories yourself. You've got some things you need to share. You can t meet a total stranger and, and start a simple conversation. Just be friendly. Be friendly. Don't tie yourself in a knot <laughs> and then tie the other guy in the knot. Just talk about Jesus. If the Lord turns the spotlight on your life and hands you the microphone, just say good things about Jesus. That's all you need to do. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your goodness, for your love, for your, your patience with us, for the way that you worked in our lives and the things that you led us to and led us through. I thank you for, for Gary. Thank you for, for Bob. And I thank you, Lord, that, that all these men had such patience with me that they got me where I needed to be to hear what I needed to hear. And Lord, I pray that you'd use all of us in some way to share truth with other people that can be changing, uh, life-changing experiences for all of them. Help us now as we close. And I pray that you cause us to remember the things that we've learned together here. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. 
May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.